Amen. Let's see, try not to get feedback here. So I've got uh, most of the scriptures. Uh, well, actually, that's not even close to being true. Some of the scriptures available on pages two and three of your packets there, so you can follow along as you'd like, take notes, scribble down, jot down ideas, whatever you'd like. But uh, so we all, as as people, as humans, as Christians, have often experienced less than godly moments in our lives. Times in which uh, we're not proud of those moments, times in which we are less than kind, less than loving, less than gentle with other people. Sometimes we might say something or do something that that brings pain or, or hurts someone else, whether intentionally or unintentional, through our ignorance or through our on purpose, right? In times in which like we are eventually disappointed with ourselves for the way that we've treated someone else or the way we've acted towards someone else or the way we've belittled someone. And, and what I want us to think about for this, this moment today is uh, what if, like whether it's uh, an argument with your spouse or a way you've maybe acted or behaved at, at work or you know, maybe you've gossiped or slandered or were flattering someone else, what, what if in that moment or immediately following, imagine if Jesus was to show up and just say, hey, hey, what are you guys talking about? Like, what, what were you just saying? And, and, and even though we might not have fully realized the, the wrongness of what we just did or said, we probably would begin to feel a sense of embarrassment of like, well, I kind of don't want to say it out loud now that Jesus is the one asking me, right? I don't want to be the one to, I don't want to have to say it out loud again. I'm realizing this is kind of a shameful thing, even though I know that God is gracious, he's forgiving, he's merciful, towards me, right? He's, he's going to cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. I can boldly go before his throne of grace. But what if Jesus showed up and asked that question like, hey, what, what was that you just said? Right? Like whether it was a, a crude joke or a racist joke or just some remark that was belittling someone else on, in any terms. Like what if Jesus showed up and asked that question, right? Like we'd, we'd all feel kind of embarrassed and uncomfortable and wouldn't want to have to say it out loud again. And that's actually what we're going to look at today in the scriptures, that Jesus is going to do pretty much that exact thing. And, and we likely aren't going to experience that other than maybe, you know, when we step into eternity, like, I guess our sins are forgiven. But, you know, like Jesus knows the things that we say on this earth and we can grieve the Holy Spirit while we're here. But this is one of the things that uh, the disciples experienced as they were traveling on the road to Capernaum. And so what I've got from Matthew, Mark, and Luke before you is a possible harmonization of those three different eyewitness accounts. Uh, and so kind of if there's a horizontal, uh, horizontal commonality between the lines, you'll see like those are all similar phrases. Uh, and then I tried to sequence those together. And maybe you'd have a different sequence and that's fine. But here we go. So I'm going to be bouncing between all three of those books and hopefully doing it in a way that's not uh, blasphemous. So let's so hold me accountable. Here we go. Uh, Luke 9, an argument arose among them, that is the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. And they came to Capernaum, and when in the house, he, Jesus, asked them, what were you, what were you discussing on the way? What, what were you all talking about? Right? Like, what, what were you guys talking about as we were walking down the road between villages? And they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one, uh, one another about who was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he sat down and called the twelve. And so not the full, the full group of the disciples was not present in that initial conversation, but Jesus calls the whole group. And so as far as a little bit of context, as far as what happened right before this moment, this happened right after uh, Jesus took only three of his disciples up on what's referred to as the Mount Transfiguration. And right, he is gloriously revealed. Moses and Elijah appear and God speaks to Jesus and those present saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And I want to let you know that God still loves the son. He wants you to love the son. And he still thinks that we should listen to him. All right, like his words have not become obsolete. All right. And so only three of the disciples go up the mountain. And while they are there, the other nine are approached by a father and his son who's been oppressed by a demon. And those, those nine disciples are unable to cast the demon out. And so they come back down the mountain. They encounter this, 
turmoil. The father is asking Jesus to help in any way that he could. And Jesus ends up casting out the demon. And then in private later, the disciples ask Jesus, so, so why, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus says, it's not but by prayer and fasting that this kind of faith could come out and that you'd be able to cast out the demon. And so those are kind of the moments that happened right before they walk on the road. There was actually one more moment. Jesus again prophesies to them the fact that he's going to suffer and die at the hands of wicked men. He prophesies his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But they don't, they're actually too afraid to ask him any more details about that. They don't quite piece together what he's saying. But nonetheless, what I want us to think about is that the disciples likely had a degree of pride, selfish ambition, envy, jealousy of one another because only three got to go up the mountain. And then the nine, whether it, whatever was going on in their hearts in that moment, they, they couldn't cast out that demon. And maybe the other three thought they were special because Jesus took only them. And maybe they thought, hey, I bet we could have cast out that demon if we were given a chance. And so they begin to argue with each other about who's the greatest. And what's interesting is Jesus actually gives them a long leash. They walk the whole way to Capernaum, and he doesn't interrupt it. He actually lets them keep going, and they're arguing with each other about who is the greatest. And so this kind of paints a context as to like why they might have had that argument, and some of, some of it's speculation for sure. I mean, it's also possible because Jesus was saying that he was going to die. Maybe they're thinking like, who's, who's taken over once he's got, right? Who's, who's going to be responsible for this ministry, or who will always be remembered as the greatest disciple? All right, and so Jesus ends up interrupting them, a subgroup of them, when they show up at a house in Capernaum. And he says, what were you discussing along the way? And none of them speak. None of them are willing to talk. However many disciples that was, they all knew what was said, and none of them wanted to speak. They all likely could point to the guilt of another disciple, but they probably were bearing a degree of shame on their own as well because they were participating in it and they didn't speak but Jesus knew what was said perhaps revealed by the Holy Spirit as it is in other cases in the scriptures and he even knew the reasoning in their hearts he realized there was something off about how they measured greatness there was something off about how they perceived the value of their fellow man he realized that they had looked at themselves as important and diminished the value of their peers. Enough so that they were willing to argue with their peers about how great they were. And so Jesus was willing to correct this. And so Jesus asked this question, what were you discussing along the way? And I want to point out, I, I believe Jesus knew what they were discussing. I don't think Jesus was asking because he didn't know. This is similar to when a God in the Garden of Eden asks Adam, where are you? It wasn't that God didn't know where Adam was, but I think he wanted to reveal to Adam's heart that something had shifted. Something had changed. It's essentially like asking the question, Adam, why are you hiding from me who has only ever done good or very good things for you? What caused you to change? Why are you hiding, Adam? Is what God was really asking with that question. Or maybe it's something like, what has shifted in your thinking, right? Why do you choose to believe someone other than me, right? He ends up also asking the question, who told you that you were naked, right? What other voice are you listening to? Why are you importing this worldly, demonic view into yourself and living as though that's true and accusing God as being a liar or God is withholding good from you? Right? That's the kind of question that God was getting to. And it, by asking Adam, where are you? Or who told you you were naked? It's forcing him to come to terms with the fact that he was no longer trusting God. He was no longer trusting that God was good or that God cared about him or that God loved him or that right, God was out for his best interest. And so when Jesus asks the question in a similar way, what were you discussing on the way? It's likely asking something to the effect of, why do you think? you're greater than your brothers? What causes you to think that you're so great? Or why do you think that greatness is determined by power or influence or money or the one who gets to speak the most 
or the one who gets the most attention? Why do you think that's where greatness comes from? If I am your teacher, and I live humbly and love and serve and care for those who are the least of these, who taught you that greatness is measured the way that you're measuring it? Why are you thinking that greatness is measured like that? What makes you think that greatness is actually all that important at all? Right? These are the types of things that I think Jesus was beginning to expose in their hearts. And all of them remained silent. One of the things I want to point out that Jesus does here is he recognizes something was off in his people, in his gathering, in the disciples, in his leadership. And he doesn't avoid it. He's willing to address it. He doesn't just pretend like, well, it's not a big deal. I'm going to die for their sins in a, a few years or whatever. Like, you know, their sins will be forgiven, so I, I don't really need to bring it to their attention. No, Jesus lovingly addresses their sin, even though their sin will be forgiven. He lovingly addresses the flock because he doesn't want the flock to harm one another in their belief. He addresses his leadership because he wants to make sure that they're not teaching falsehood to the rest of the group, right? That they're not infecting the rest of the, the church yet to be with their perceptions of what is great or what's important. And so Jesus doesn't ignore sin, he corrects it. It says this in Ephesians 5.11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And so Jesus is willing to do that. And I want to suggest this isn't judgmental. This is loving for the individuals that are being corrected because God disciplines those that he loves. And it's also loving for his church, the community of believers that he wants them to love their neighbor in and among, right? And so he doesn't simply forgive unrepentant sin. He addresses it. He diagnoses it in order to prune it away, in order to bring healing to the individual and healing to the community. And so what's interesting here is Jesus invites the rest of the group to participate. And he doesn't get them himself. He doesn't open the door and call out, hey, everybody, come over here. We got to have a talk. He, the Bible says, and you got it in front of you, he sits down and then calls them. And so notice this, Jesus doesn't go and get them. He's like, I want you to go get those people that you think you're so greater than. I want you to invite them to this meeting because we're going to talk about what you believe about yourself and them. I want you to invite them because they are important and they are welcome here in this conversation and we're going to address right, what's wrong in your heart and in your thinking. And so imagine right, one of these disciples being like, oh man, Jesus wants me to go call my brothers to this meeting. And so it's kind of like reluctantly goes along and like, hey guys, uh, Jesus wants us to go, go meet in the house over there. And they're like, oh, what about? Well, and he kind of like kicks the foot with his ground. Well, he wants to talk about what we were all talking about on the road. And it's like, whether they were a part of that conversation or not, like it was embarrassing the fact that like they had to invite their friends back into the group, right? That they had to expose the fact that they were in the wrong. They, they didn't yet say it to, out loud to Jesus, but, but they were like, yeah, he wants to talk about what we were all arguing about. And so whether it was the, a subset or the whole 12, we don't know. But they have to go and invite them. And so that's what happens. It would have been, been somewhat embarrassing. So back in uh, Matthew 18, verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus. And then in Mark it says, And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And so notice, right, he begins to alter and change and correct their wrong thinking. He begins to put in right perspective what it means to be first and what it means to be last. He exposes the fact that his kingdom is different than all others. Some people, and I, I think it's perfectly fine to say this, refer to God's kingdom as the upside-down kingdom. Others would argue it's called the right-side-up kingdom, that everything else in this world is broken and backwards, and it's God's kingdom that is actually the one that's in the right. And so it seems as though he begins to address what they were talking about. We don't know exactly how it was addressed. But Matthew 18, verse uh, 1 continued, it says this, The disciples came to Jesus and then said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that word then is not in the ESV, but it's in more than half of the Bible's translations. It exists in the Greek and is present. 
All right, and I think one of the reasons why it's not included in some translations, and I've never been a Bible translator, probably won't be, uh, is that in Matthew's text by itself, it would feel as though you're missing part of the story. It would feel as though you're jumping in in the middle of the conversation because it begins with, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But when we piece it together with the rest of the narrative, we can see like, oh, actually it makes sense. Jesus is likely already expressing that the first shall be last and the last shall be first in his kingdom. And then they finally ask the question, so, so Jesus, who is the greatest? Right, like, okay, so in your version, who is the greatest? And it seems like upon hearing Jesus' definition of greatness, they were confused. And it still mattered to them who was perceived as being great. Or maybe they're still trying to settle the argument. Who among our 12 is still the greatest, Jesus? Like, I want to, like, just, just tell us the names. Give us the top three, right? Who's the greatest, though? Like, yeah, I know what you just said, but who's the greatest, really? Right? And, like, so they're still trying to, like, get this sort of affirmation from Jesus. And so verse 2 in Matthew, and I'm going to be bouncing around between these, and calling to him a child, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he put him at his side, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so when they ask that question, right, of Jesus, so who then is the greatest? Like, I even imagine, like, speculate this with me for a minute. What if, like, Jesus is talking to the 12 disciples, and then one of them, like, kind of, like, stands up next to Jesus and be like, yeah, you're right, Jesus. You tell them, you know, who is the greatest, Jesus? And then, like, Jesus kind of, like, takes their hand off and, like, walks away into the midst of the group and calls a kid over, and, like, that person's embarrassed because they were trying to get Jesus to say how great they were and inviting that sort of uh, affirmation from Jesus. And, but no, 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 Jesus is like, hey, get, out, get out of here, it's not you. Right, it's, I'm calling this kid over and I want to show you what this is really about. And so, I want to point out, not only did the disciples get invited to this meeting, but there was a kid there, which means there was probably a family there. It means it was probably more than just the 12 disciples that were a part of this meeting. And, and think about that, the fact that that's kind of more uncomfortable now. He's not just addressing it amongst the twelve, he's addressing it more publicly than that. And this is actually a biblical principle. Okay, in Galatians 2, Paul corrects Peter to his face when he was showing partiality towards Jewish believers as opposed to Gentile believers. Or even uh, Paul in, in 1 Timothy 5, he corrects uh, or instructs Timothy in the way that he runs the church he says, listen, if there's ever an elder of the church who when you correct sin in their life, if they persist in sin, correct them, rebuke them even in the presence of all that all would stand in fear. And so like when there's a leader that is failing and is unrepentant about it, they're to be corrected publicly, right? Because Jesus needed to address it in front of a larger group because if his leaders were thinking this way, they might have been telling other people that this is how greatness is truly measured. And so this is something to be aware of. And this isn't a bad thing. Jesus loves his church. Now, it says, Jesus said this phrase, unless you turn, okay? Uh, and so that word turn there, it's not the same word as repent. Although elsewhere Jesus does say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught this idea of repentance, of changing your mind, turning from a life of sin to follow God, believing in him, right? Receiving him, becoming a part of his kingdom. And so I definitely could justify the idea of saying you need to turn, you need to repent to become a part of God's kingdom, but that's not actually what he's saying here. This word turn is trans could be translated changed or converted, right? You must become like this child to enter into his kingdom. It's similar to in uh, John chapter 3 when he says you must be born again. Or unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and so Jesus is suggesting that there needs to be some life transforming work done in the lives of all humans in order for us to enter his kingdom. All right, that our default state as humans is not being a part of his kingdom. We've rebelled, we've cooperated, we've joined in rebellion against God's kingdom, and we must be brought back in. And so Jesus says we must become 
like children to enter the kingdom of God. And so what does this mean? Like when he brought up that child, he's basically suggesting, listen, to enter into God's kingdom, it's not on your own merit. It's not on your own goodness. It's not on your own influence or power or ability or your own credentials. This kid in the eyes of that culture has nothing to offer. But that's the way that all of us must enter in to God's kingdom, realizing we have nothing to offer. We did not earn this on our own, right? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? We can't enter God's kingdom boastfully saying, I have kept all the commandments since my youth, right? That's the kind of person who walks away weeping when they encounter Jesus because they want to retain their identity in their own good works. It's called self-righteousness, all right? And so we must humble ourselves in order to enter God's kingdom. We must recognize our need for forgiveness in order to receive the mercy that Jesus offers. And so we must become like children to enter the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't want us to remain like children. Jesus wants us to have childlike faith, but he does not want his people to be childish. Here's uh, Ephesians 4. It's not on your packet. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to, listen to this, mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so we enter into God's kingdom as children, but he wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. He wants us to be fruitful in his kingdom. None of our good works could ever get us into the kingdom of God, but the Father desires that we would bear much fruit. Whether we're not bearing fruit or whether we're bearing some, he will either cut away or he will prune that we would be more fruitful. Jesus desires a church that is maturing and growing and loving God, one that is abundant in good works, one that is seeking his will for their lives. The author of Hebrews writes it this way, uh, Hebrews 5, 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And so, not that you abandon the foundation, it's just that you keep building, you don't stop at the foundation. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instructions about washings, that's baptisms, and the laying on of hands and the resur resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, right? From the author of Hebrews' perspective, all of these things are foundational truths. That's where we begin, but we don't stop there. We continue to grow and mature. And one thing that's interesting is it says that we are trained by constant practice to be able to rightly divide good and evil. That we might enter the kingdom of God just like the disciples did with all sorts of wrong and worldly thinking about what is great, what is good, what is evil. And over time, God's going to cut that away, prune that away. And it's, it's not like by default. He doesn't download this information into our brains. It's through constant practice, right? Discerning the word of God as it reveals to us the truth of God, right? And the truth of our lives in this world around us. And so Jesus says we must enter his kingdom as children, but we do not remain that way. Another uh, tough fact, and this is going to be the the toughest part we hear today is this. He says that unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Like that's a hard, a hard thing to say. 
Jesus implies here and explicitly says it much more clearly elsewhere that not all will enter into his kingdom. And he's heartbroken by this truth. In Mark chapter 10, he says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And so he says it much more clearly. Or John 12, 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, and the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And so this is a hard thing to think about. Right? The God who loves, the God who seeks and save, to save the lost is acknowledging that not all will enter his kingdom. That not all will choose to follow, choose to receive. Right? Jesus said some will reject him. And this is an offensive claim. Yet the author of Hebrews just indicated that repentance from dead works and faith towards God and eternal judgment were basic doctrines, elementary doctrines of Christ. And just because this is a hard thing to consider, a hard truth, doesn't mean that it's not loving to speak it, right? Because Jesus is the incarnation of the God who is love, and he thought in his three and a half years of ministry on the earth that saying things like that were some of the necessary things for humans to hear in order for us to experience salvation, right? Just because one may not want it to be true would not make it false, Right? You might not, like Jesus desires that, all, that none should perish and that all should reach repentance. Right? Just because I want people to not experience eternal judgment doesn't somehow make it not true. You might think that this is an arrogant claim for me to make. Right? That, that this is the only way to enter into God's kingdom. All right? You might argue that, uh, right, Brian, you're incredibly exclusive and egotistical to somehow think, that the way that you believe happens to be the only way that you can be saved. But I'm going to argue this. It would be arrogant of me to reject it. I am not the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I am not so great that I can deny the words of Christ. I cannot let my opinion and my perspectives and my desires supersede his throne of glory. Right? I'm not so great in this world that my perception of reality is better than his. I'm not so loving that I'm more loving than Jesus who gave his life to save us because God so loved the world that he sent his son to save us. Jesus is greater than me. Jesus loves more than me. Jesus seeks to save more than me. And Jesus still says this. And so what does this indicate? That in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must be changed. We must be transformed, converted. We must be made into the righteousness of God. And that's only through Christ. And it's during this human lifetime in which we must experience this transformation. And fortunately, Jesus makes a way for that to happen. We are able to enter in through Jesus' offering. In James 4, 6, it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? If we're willing to acknowledge our need for forgiveness and, and receive God's mercy, we can enter in. But as long as we try to stand on our own good works, he resists that heart attitude. In fact, Jesus explicitly corrected those who had this perspective of self-righteousness. I won't read the parable, but the way that it's introduced in Luke 18, 9, it says this, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so if we trust in ourselves to be righteous, we can't enter his kingdom. Jesus corrects that kind of thinking. And he invites us in by his mercy, by his grace, and we enter in through faith. And so Jesus teaches them that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven must be one who humbles himself. He continues, uh, verse 5 in Matthew 18, you've got it on your page. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Right? And you see there's confirmation from the other Gospels there as well. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so Jesus is talking about receiving a child in his name. And he literally has a kid standing next to him in the midst of a crowd. And I could very easily argue that Right? He's saying, like, we should care for the poor and the orphan and the foreigner, the fatherless. 
Right, that some Christian families are called to adopt those who have no parents. Right, that like I could easily make all those arguments. And, and Jesus says those kinds of things elsewhere, that we should, right, give food to the hungry, give water to those who are thirsty, right, visit those who are sick or in, in prison, and right, we're supposed to care for people like that. But I actually, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And you should probably feel a little bit uncomfortable like, Brian, I, I think it's pretty clear he's talking about receiving a child in his name. But uh, I would argue that's not necessarily what he's saying. I think he's talking about his disciples. Okay? Uh, and part of that's related to this idea of sentness. Right? He talks about receiving him is receiving the one who sent him. That the Father sent the Son. And earlier in the Gospels, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And he, in the same passage, talks in Matthew uh, 10, verse 40. He says, whoever receives you, speaking to his 72 disciples, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. It's exactly the same language. And so when he's talking about these little ones, these children, and someone receiving them, he's actually talking about Right? Disciples going out in and among the world, bringing the good news of the kingdom, and people receiving them either into their households or experiencing the peace of God resting on their household, Jesus describes, right? or receiving the message that they proclaim. And Jesus says, if you receive that message, you're receiving me, and you're receiving God the Father who sent me. And so that's kind of like an interesting concept. You could definitely argue it both ways. But Jesus makes this link between him and the Father. He says, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He, he makes somehow this exclusivity that the access to the Father is found through the Son. Right? The Bible describes that he is our mediator. Right? It, it, by no other name can we be saved. Like It's only through Jesus that we have access to the Father. And Jesus describes this elsewhere in John 5. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Later on, it says, the very works that I am doing, Jesus saying, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Right? All the miracles, the teaching, all of the healings that he's doing, he's saying, is evidence of the fact that he was sent by the Father. He says uh, to the Pharisees at this time, he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And so Jesus is saying, like, unless we receive the words of Christ, we don't have access to the Father. We're rejecting God when we reject the Son. And he actually went so far as to say this, <laughs> I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. And so Jesus links the receiving of Christ, receiving of the, the suffering servant that God sends into this world to bear our sin, he links receiving that forgiveness through Christ as being the only way that we can have access to the God who made us, the God who loves us, and the God who has a purpose for us. And another thing to consider as far as Jesus saying, the one who receives, one, who, uh, one of these little ones receives me, he's actually speaking of in terms of like blessing and reward. Right, that uh, the one who receives a prophet gets a prophet's reward, he says elsewhere. Uh, he's, he's talking about the fact that, that receiving them is similar to receiving him, that he personally uh, looks at it as, as uh, an act of service done towards him when we treat someone else with love and care. Right? Jesus takes that personally. Okay? Uh, right? And he actually says this in Matthew 25, uh, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me, right? And so when we love someone else, when we care for other, other people, when we serve other people, when we don't esteem ourselves as so great and we seek to serve another person, Jesus personally receives that service, right? He pays attention to that. As far as this concept of receiving Jesus, uh, some people use that language, receiving Jesus, to describe the moment of salvation, and that language has always felt a little bit awkward to me, but the Bible does kind of describe that a little bit, uh, even though that's not what Jesus is talking about here. But in John 1.12, John speaking, uh, the apostle, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? And so our becoming children, entering his kingdom, 
is linked to receiving the Son, believing in His name. That's how we become children. It's not just like, maybe if I can be humble enough, I could enter His kingdom. That's not how we become children and enter in. It's through receiving and believing. All right, let's keep going. Verse 6 in Matthew 18. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. And so this is also the argument that the little ones he's describing are not merely the children of the world. Because these children are capable of believing. Right? He says, whoever would cause one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. Right? That becoming a child of God is linked to believing in Jesus, believing the words that he said, believing in the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And so they are old enough to understand and to reason, to believe and to trust in Jesus is who he's describing. And this is how we enter into God's kingdom. Uh, And one of the things here that Jesus is very concerned about is the way we treat fellow believers, right? He says that we should not mistreat or cause someone to sin or to stumble whether through temptation, whether through ignoring sin or encouraging sin, we should not cause one of these little ones to stumble, those who have believed in his name. And then Jesus kind of concludes this thought uh, over in Luke. I've got the third column there. For he who is least among you, uh, least among you all, is the one who is great. And so this is similar to how he began his conversation with the group. He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last and the servant of all. And then he says, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And so he redefines what greatness is. Uh, Paul makes a similar argument in Philippians 2.3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Count, right? The way that we measure someone's worth. Right? Regardless of if we actually think it's true, in all of our accounting, and all of our logs, right, we need to think that every other person is more significant than me. Right? We need to believe that about other people and that will change the way that we treat them. It will change the way that we value them. Now, I almost didn't include this, this last part, verse 49, except I noticed something. It felt unrelated to me. But notice it says this, John answered, And so that means he's responding to what Jesus was just saying. It's not a whole separate thought. It's in relation to that conversation. So Jesus just said, hey, this is how you really measure greatness. This is what greatness looks like in my kingdom. And then John answered, hey, master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. And so the fact that John asks this question in relation to greatness, it's almost like he's saying, okay, so Jesus, yeah, I understand how you measure greatness in your kingdom, but we're greater than that guy, right? Like we're at least greater than him because we at least get to hang out with you. And that guy doesn't even, he's not even a part of your ministry. So we're, we're greater than him. Like, could you at least give us that though, right? Like, because we're, we're on the varsity team, Jesus. Like, we get to hang out with you, and he doesn't. So are we at least greater than him? And like, Jesus is like, guys, no. <laughs> like, that's not, how it, that's not how it works. This man, whoever it was, I want to point out, seems to have authentically been able to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. It wasn't a false miracle. It wasn't a false work. This is an authentic thing that happened. And in the book of Acts, when uh, some non-believers tried to do the same thing, They try to cast out a demon by saying, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. That demon doesn't respect their authority because they don't know Jesus. Right? And so this individual, whoever John's describing, had authentic ability and relationship with God, power from God working through him to cast out a demon. And think about that. This person has a ministry at the same time and in the same region as the time when the Son of God is on the earth doing miracles and declaring God's kingdom. And somehow God says, yeah, I'm not going to have you part of that, that crew. You're, you're in support of what they're doing. Your ministry is supplemental to what they're doing. 
but you're not going to be a part of their local fellowship. You're going to be doing a ministry elsewhere that I've called you to. Like, isn't that like crazy? Like, wouldn't that be like, man, like, God, why do I have to do ministry the same time Jesus is? (laughs) Like, I don't want to compete with that. But that's the whole idea that Jesus is saying. We're not competing, right? We can't uh, esteem our church local gathering as being greater because it's Valley Town, right? Like we can't consider like, oh, we're so great because we're a part of this particular denomination, right? Like if someone is part of the kingdom of God, if someone has believed and received Jesus, we can't be having this kind of like local sports team like hoorah mentality where we're all about us, right? It's about God's kingdom and not about the local expression of God's kingdom, okay? And so, so that's what Jesus is addressing here. And Paul does the same thing. He says he had to correct the Corinthian church when some were like all about the apostle Paul and some were all about the, the I think he was an apostle, Apollos. And, right, and they had like these little crews like, oh, I listen to all of his sermons, Right? I retweet all of his stuff. Right? Like, and, and it's like, Paul's like, what are you guys doing? We're all on the same team. Right? One plants and other waters and God gives the increase. We're not about our own little team. Right? We're about the kingdom of God. And we're cooperating together is what's taking place. So, alright, so this man was in the kingdom of God, cooperating, participating a supplemental ministry to what Jesus was doing and God was being glorified because people were being set free. Fast forward to Luke 22. This is at the Last Supper. So think about this. They've had three and a half years of time with Jesus. right? He's been teaching them about what it means to be great in the kingdom of God at least two times before this. And, and Jesus tells them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I'm handed over to the hands of sinful men and suffer and die, right? Jesus is talking about his death. And then he literally breaks the bread and pours out the wine and he gives it to them and describes this new covenant. And, and you know what the disciples are doing, right? Listen to this. Uh, or after he does communion, he says this, but behold, verse 21, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to die, and the very person who betrays me is in our group. And, and look at it over in Matthew's uh, Gospel, verse 22. It says, And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him, uh, one after another, Is it I, Lord? That their first response is with humility. Like, God, am I the one that's going to betray you? Am I the one who's going to cause you to go to the cross? And it begins that way. But look back in Luke, verse 23. And they began to question now one another. So it began humble, and then it becomes accusing of one another. Which of them could it be that was going to do this? And verse 24, and a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Right? Jesus is like there the day before he's going to die on the cross, has the last supper, the first communion, and his whole table erupts in an argument about how great they are. Like no sympathy for Jesus, no compassion for what he's about to endure. He's describing the new covenant, and his whole leadership team is arguing about who's the greatest. And so imagine this, right? It begins with humility and then starts accusing who of them could it be? Like, you know, they're probably thinking, well, like, okay, so if, gee, I don't think it's me. You know who it probably is, though? It's probably that guy, Matthew. That dude's a tax collector, a sellout to his own people, getting money on the side from the Roman Empire, going against the nation of Israel. It's probably that guy. I never trusted him. You know, so, or someone might have been like, you know, it's probably one of those rebels, those zealots, James and John, the sons of thunder. Those guys used to start riots trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. It was probably those guys. Like, ah, they don't, they've never respected authority or leadership. They're probably the ones that are going to betray Jesus. Right? They began speculating all of these things, thinking like, I know I'm a sinful man, but I've never done what they did. Like, it's probably that guy. And this is what they focus on. And they begin to, to get defensive, right? Probably something like, hey, I'm more 
faithful as a disciple than you are. Right? Jesus took me up on that mountain. Right? I probably could have cast out that demon. And, right, and then someone else being like, yeah, but remember the time Jesus literally said, get behind me, Satan, to you? Like, it's probably you. Right? Like, like, and they're just arguing back and forth and defending themselves as to who is the greatest. Jesus tells them he's going to suffer and die, and they're talking about how great they are. They're possibly talking about who's going to be in charge once he dies. Right? Come tomorrow evening, who's the new boss? Right? It's like, I, I got to hear it from Jesus' mouth so that all of you know who it is. Right? Who's the greatest? And what's interesting is it's this question, who would be regarded as the greatest? This word regarded is this Greek word that talks about what do you think? What is your opinion? What is your perception? And so they're not even arguing about who actually is the greatest. They're arguing about like, but do people like me the most? What will people think about me? That's what I actually care. I don't care if I'm actually great in God's kingdom. I want people to think that I'm great is what they're arguing about. And so they don't actually care about what Jesus thinks about greatness. They care about what other people think. Which is more important, how you're perceived by others or whether you're actually accomplishing mighty, fruitful works for the sake of the kingdom of God? Right? Which of those things actually matters? Right? I think about like if this was present day and they're having this argument at this table with Jesus, maybe it's at the Olive Garden, right? And Jesus tells them, right, like, hey, like, I'm going to die tomorrow. One of you is going to betray me. And they all have this argument, and they're talking about who's the greatest. Right? They would have been, like, taking selfies with Jesus and be like, hey, I don't know about the rest of this crew, but I was, like, best friends with Jesus. I'm going to be so sad tomorrow when he dies. Right? Or, like, hashtag greatest disciple, greatest teacher. Right? Like, trying to, like, boast about how great they are. Right? Or, or just something like, hey, no one else is going to share this, but I'm going to be heartbroken tomorrow when Jesus dies. Right? Like, like, that's the sort of thing that they're arguing about, having no compassion about what Jesus is about to endure for their sakes. And Jesus says this, verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the one greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? That was their cultural norm. He says, but I am among you as one who serves. Or he says it elsewhere, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Jesus even washes their feet that evening and demonstrates his care and compassion, his willingness to serve, even though he is literally the Son of God, the incarnate God on the earth, God in the flesh dwelling among us. That's what he came to do, is to serve, to seek to save the lost. And then verse 28, you, those disciples who are present, he said, are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, and so those particular disciples, some of them will be sitting on thrones in God's kingdom, reigning with him. We'll experience something similar, but he literally gives us his kingdom. We literally will be feasting with him, right? Eating and drinking in his kingdom. Jesus invites us in and he says, those who are a part of his kingdom, he identifies or is partly related to those who are willing to stay with him in his trials. Right? Like being a part of God's kingdom, his great greatness is measured differently, but so is what that kingdom looks like in its expression, in the way it works out on this earth. We might experience trial and tribulation and suffering and that's not an indication that we are apart from God's kingdom. In fact, Jesus said in the four seed parable, there are those who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so we can't reject 
the Word of God. We can't reject the Son of God even in moments where it might have increased the difficulty or the struggle or the suffering in our life. There will be times in which we experience persecution, but we can't look at that as somehow indicating we're not a part of God's kingdom. Greatness is measured differently. Suffering is interpreted differently when we're in the kingdom of God. And so in closing, and let's see, we kind of have Ren come on up. This is what I, I was thinking, right? So we've been going through this sermon series, what would Jesus ask you? And there's two types of questions that he'd ask, he'd ask us. Are you in his kingdom? Right, that's one of the things that Jesus is most concerned about. Are you in my kingdom? Have you received me? Is my word in you? Are you willing to turn, convert, to be changed, transformed, become like a child? Are you willing to repent, to walk away from dead works and pride and self-righteousness? Are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to enter my kingdom? And for those who are already in his kingdom, who have already gone through that process of becoming humble and like children and still are screwed up just like his disciples were, he might ask, hey, what are all y'all talking about? What are you running your mouth about as you're on your way towards his kingdom? Right? Like, what's the sort of things that you discuss here? Why are you expressing values that are worldly values instead of the way the kingdom values things? Who are you undervaluing? Who are you serving? Do you think of yourself as greater than others? Do you neglect others? Do you look down on those who might not be a part of your local fellowship? Do you want to be great? Do you want to be effective and fruitful in God's kingdom, bearing fruit? Or do you want to be merely perceived as great? Are you maturing? Are you growing? Are you staying like a child tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? Right? Or are you training in righteousness? Are you through constant practice able to discern between good and evil? Right? So Jesus would ask all sorts of questions, things that the scriptures do ask. And some of those are going to apply to us differently and the Holy Spirit will reveal to us the things that he's pruning away that we would bear more fruit. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your work, for your goodness, for your being willing to humble yourself, come to this earth, to live a life, to serve, to care, and to, to love your neighbor, to be willing to, to die, even a death on the cross, that we could be redeemed, that we could be forgiven. I thank you, Lord, that it's not because of our own goodness that we can enter your kingdom. It's not because of our own good works or, or self-righteousness. But all are welcome. All are invited into your household, into your kingdom. And it's done by receiving you, by believing in you and your words, believing that you have died in our place for our sins. And I ask God that you would do miraculous transformations in us today. Whether we have just become a part of your kingdom or if we've been apart for a while, that, Lord, you would cause your church to be a light to this world, that we would be a beacon of hope, that, Lord, you would prune away the ugly things that are still remaining in us, that we would be a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, that we would be prepared as a bride for you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.